Hello and welcome to Brussels Sprouts. I'm Nick Walker. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. As the war between Russia and Ukraine drags on with little progress toward a resolution, fractures are beginning to appear in the European response. While the European Union successfully came together to take swift and decisive action during the early stages of the conflict, unity has been harder to come by in recent weeks, with the differing perceptions and attitudes leading to more frequent disagreements among member states. There has been particularly harsh criticism directed against Germany and France, which some have accused of taking an overly conciliatory approach toward Russia, pointing to evidence such as German hesitation to deliver weapons to Ukraine and French statements calling for the West not to humiliate Russia. Um, as, as Berlin and Paris receive increasing pushback from other member states who advocate for a bolder policy of unreserved support for Ukraine, the prospects for continued unity appear much less certain going forward. In order to make sense of these differing European perspectives on the Russia-Ukraine war, we're pleased to welcome Pierre Morcos and Jeremy Shapiro to the podcast. Uh, just by way of Brief background on our two guests. Pierre Morcos is a visiting fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as a career diplomat with the French Foreign Service. And Jeremy Shapiro is the research director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, where he focuses on US foreign policy and transatlantic relations. A welcome to you both. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'd just like to start by asking each of you to give us the state of play on the current responses to the war from France and Germany, including the, the factors that you think might be behind their respective approaches, as well as your assessment of whether you think that the criticism they've been receiving is fair or, or whether instead it might be somewhat misplaced. Um, Pierre, why don't we start with you on uh, the view from Paris and then Jeremy will go to you for the view from Berlin. Sure. Thank you so much, uh, Nick and Jim, for having us today. It's a real pleasure to be a part of, of your great podcast. Um, so since the very beginning, the French approach to the war in Ukraine has been based on, I would say, two pillars. Uh, first, assisting Ukraine uh, as much as, as possible, including with uh, heavy equipment, uh, while not being uh, a co-belligerent in, in the war. Uh, so France has actually recently beefed up its support to Ukraine, uh, notably by sending long-range artillery, the Caesar cannons, uh, to Ukraine, which are already in action in, in eastern Ukraine with quite uh, effective results. Um, but France is also mindful of not uh, going too far in its support and not uh, being uh, uh, formally part of, of the conflict. And, and that's actually the line also uh, defended by the Biden administration. Uh, the second uh, uh, element of the French approach is to keep sanctioning and pressuring Russia. Uh, and France has actually been quite forward-leaning when it comes to uh, pushing for additional sanctions against Moscow, especially because France is quite in a comfortable position when it comes to its energy mix and its rather independence from Russian fossil fuels. But, and that's maybe where there might be, and there is uh, a growing debate among Europeans, France is also uh, considering that at some point we will have to have a discussion and negotiation with Moscow. And that's why President Macron has kept engaging uh, with President Putin uh, at the request of President Zelensky uh, in particular, because for the Ukrainian uh, leader, uh, it is important to maintain this channel of communication. Uh, and, and Paris believes that uh, we cannot expect a full military solution to, to the war. Uh, at the end of the day, there will be uh, negotiations, uh, there will be an agreement, 
that will be decided uh, solely by Ukraine. Uh, but uh, France is trying just to facilitate these uh, discussions. Uh, so that's why President Macron used this term of not humiliating Russia, not Putin, but Russia. Uh, when it comes to Putin, it is clear that uh, it is he is already humiliating himself, uh, and uh, he's already sanctioned, and uh, and France will also favor uh, a prosecution of the war crimes committed by his regime. But when it comes to Russia, uh, it will remain a neighbor uh, uh, in Europe, and we will have to compose with that geographical reality, and we'll have to uh, at some point uh, have a, a settlement of, of that conflict. Uh, and that's maybe the area where many Europeans are uncomfortable because they think that for the time being, the priority should be uh, uh, assisting Ukraine as much as possible and not discussing uh, this political settlement for them. It's too soon. It might send a, a mixed signal uh, to Russia that there is a Ukraine fatigue. Uh, and, and that's maybe where, why uh, the French messaging uh, on, on that particular issue has not, well, has, has not been well received among Europeans. Jeremy, how about you? Uh, yeah, kind of the same. Um, I mean, I think that the the Berlin policies could broadly be characterized similarly as Pierre just characterized the French policy. They would certainly declare it that way. It, um, you know, as is usual in such at such moments, the German politicians are somewhat uh, less outspoken uh, than the than the French politicians, particularly than President Macron. So, but. I think they would describe their policy that way. I, I do think, though, that there is a sort of mistake in the premise of your question that uh, the, the French and the German policies don't depart from the European mainstream. The French and German policies are the European mainstream. Um, the, uh, and so there, there is a great deal of unity on this question still. I would accept the point that it, it is fraying, but I worry that, uh, and there are internal European differences, as Pierre said, but actually, uh, the, you know, we 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 did a poll on on this at ECFR in the last few weeks, and and it's clear that uh, the position that Pierre described is the position of most European publics and European states. Um, and so there is a sort of broad consensus. The exceptions there are important exceptions, particularly uh, Poland and the Baltic states, um, who definitely think differently about it, uh, and there and. And principally over the question uh, that Pierre highlighted of the of sort of how does this end? What do we do next? There isn't really much disunity on what we're doing now. Sanctions, arms delivery. They, there's sort of a lot of niggling around the edges about, you know, are you sending it fast enough and what are you sending? And should you send the Mark II rocket or the Mark III rocket? But um, fundamentally, there is pretty strong unity, especially by European standards on what's going on right now. But But there is a lot of debate about the sort of future prospects and what, what they're trying to do, and particularly on the question of whether what we called in the ECFR survey, peace versus justice, whether the effort, whether what's going on is an effort to uh, secure a peace settlement through strength with Russia and end the war, what's going on, or whether what's going on is an effort to punish Russia for its aggression. Um, and I think, frankly, the internal European debate is super interesting, and I think over time it, it does threaten Western unity. But for the moment, and probably for a little while to come, the main factor in Western unity is the United States. Um, and the, the truth is that uh, 
regardless of all of these debates that we're having about French and German and even Polish and Estonian arms provisions, the United States is providing more weapons uh, than every than every European country combined by a lot. Um, they just, you know, they, they've so far, uh, well, just recently they passed a bill to provide 40 billion dollars more of assistance, which is, you know, uh, pretty much the defense budget of Germany. Uh, so um, it, it's what right now, um, what is holding Western unity is the sort of central glue of uh, the United States. And, and from a, particularly from a German perspective, that's kind of the way they want it. Uh, Germany is not going to be a problem for the United States, but it's also not going to be a solution. They are really uh, in a sort of followership mode. Uh, France, of course, is uh, Pierre can speak to this is a little bit more out front, but I think um, and and will and could well be in the future. But I think actually in the last two months has really uh, taken a more similar position. Well, I, I agree with those points. I, I, that was just a great way to start, and I really appreciate those views. And I think we need to really understand here in Washington, uh, Jeremy, particularly what you were just saying in terms of what's kind of keeping the unity together among the Europeans and the transatlantic approach is, is really what the U.S. is doing. So let me ask you a question in, along those lines. And Jeremy, first with you, and I've got a second question for Pierre, but, but Jeremy, you know, um, if the United States was not playing as, as forward-leaning as we are, if we were not providing as much in terms of equipment, if we were not out there as vocally uh, against uh, what Russia is doing, we're not leading the Europeans, we were, uh, you know, standing, uh, standing back a bit. What do you think would be happening now in terms of the European approach? For sure, the Poles uh, and the Balts and Romania, uh, they, they would be on the ramparts uh, screaming and yelling, and we got to do something. Uh, but if the U.S. was, was not as present as, as we are now, if we were a bit standoffish, what do you think the European approach to this would be? Would it be standoffish as well? Just a lot of rhetoric out of the Central East Europeans and not a whole lot necessarily. I mean, maybe some sanctions from the EU, you know, maybe this. What, what do you think uh, the European approach would be absent the U.S.? Oh, wow. That's a great question, Jim. I particularly like it because it's a counterfactual, which means I can say anything I want and not be contradicted. Exactly. Uh, I love those. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking about that question a long, for a long time, really, in, in other contexts. Um, and the, 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 the thing is, is that it's a little bit hard because the European reaction to crises like this has been conditioned over decades, really, because they can hardly imagine a world in which the counterfactual that you're talking about exists. They haven't prepared for it, even either materially or, or intellectually. Or, uh, even any, after Trump, even after Trump. Even when after he showed Trump, which, that that could happen. Exactly. It's quite remarkable uh, that, I mean, you, and you can have this sort of weird uh, paradoxical conversations with Europeans on this question where they'll acknowledge, particularly since Trump, occasionally even before, that they should be preparing for that kind of thing. But then they will also acknowledge that they aren't. Um, and uh, I, but I think, and here I'm, uh, I'm going to go out a little bit on the limb. I think that the, the, the problem there has been that the, the, that the U.S. sort of will and capacity and even desire for leadership 
has had an infantilizing effect on European public discourse in this way. I think that's true pretty much everywhere in Europe with, with the important exception of France. And what that, and I, I think that, you know, how do, how do children grow up? They grow up when their parents uh, pull out the net. Uh, yeah. And so actually I think that, uh, you know, it, it would have been a scary experiment to run. And so I'm not sure I would have recommended it in February, but I do think that um, we would have seen a very different, particularly German reaction if the United States hadn't stepped up because what enables Germany not to step up uh, and take leadership. I mean, they stepped, as I said, they stepped up enough, but basically as little as they could. What enables them not to is because the United States does, and they understand perfectly well the problem of Russia, the threat that Russia poses, and the need for solidarity with their Eastern neighbors. And the United States actually allows them to take, to get the sort of best of both worlds. They can uh, make sure that those problems are being taken care of, but also not have to suffer the domestic slings and arrows and the budgetary woes that would come and just the political pressure that would come from leading themselves. So I guess I think they would stand up. I know the French would stand up. They, we, we can hardly stop them from standing up already. Um, and I think most of the other uh, European countries would as well. I mean, there's a couple of small exceptions. We've seen Hungary's not even stepping up now. Um, and there's a few, I think there's a few others, but by and large, I think you would have seen a much more forceful response uh, without the, the US. But, you know, I have to admit to argue against myself, we, we, don't, ha we don't have any evidence for this because uh, it's never happened. Uh, and it would be quite a risky experiment. And, you know, it's interesting because I think Putin uh, was facing that same question too. Uh, he was, I think, rolling the dice that the U.S. would have been maybe a bit standoffish for, for various reasons, our own problems domestically, et cetera. And that if the U.S. did stand off a bit, then that might uh, make the Europeans not so willing to put their neck on the line either. They would, they would stand on the sidelines and shake their fist and do sanctions a la 2014 kind of things but wouldn't really intervene the way uh, all of us have. Uh, and I think that was one of his assumptions that proved wrong, but he was certainly looking at that counterfactual, if you will, uh, you know, if the US- I, I don't know, I mean, I don't, there, I, don't know how you, I don't know how you know that, Jim. I mean, it's possible, but I don't see any evidence for that um, because in fact, um, you know, there was a buildup to this war for several months. Um, the, the Russians had the opportunity to back out whenever they wanted. The, 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 the moves were very, very clearly, as clearly as they ever are telegraphed. We knew on February 23rd what would happen on February 25th if there was this Russian invasion. Certainly the Russians knew it too. Yeah. Um, the unity might be a surprise in the course of a sort of long term, uh, you know, looking back a year or two, but it's not, it wasn't a surprise in February. Um, because the United States had been building and others had been building that unity for several months at that point and had obviously succeeded. Uh, I have a different perspective, which is that the Russians did this because they felt that they had to, and they did understand the reaction that they would be facing. Uh, that's interesting. That, I, that's a really important perspective. I think here in Washington, and when you're here this summer, we can all talk about it. The feeling sure. was that that there was a real mis, misreading by Putin of the West and the United States. Uh, but I think your point, though, is well taken. Uh, he should not have had such a misreading uh, because, you were, as you said, uh, certainly in the United States and Europe, 
knew this was going to happen. There was a lot of signs uh, before the invasion that they were going to there was going to be a unified approach. He could have stopped, pulled the brake, and said, "Uh oh." He didn't, uh, and uh, and off we went. So uh, so I, I I salute that. I think I think as we try to figure Putin out, and we and like you said, we'll never know. Uh, I think your perspective that's an important one. But let let me turn to uh, to Pierre. Um, what's your what's your view on this on this in terms of France? Uh, Jeremy gave us a good idea on where on Germany and the counterfactual as well. Uh, how about from from Paris? Well, maybe building on on Jeremy's response, I think we are in a in a paradoxical situation because on one hand, Europeans have actually stepped up uh, in terms of increasing their defense budgets, yep. assisting Ukraine, uh, also using the European tools, uh, such as the European Peace Facility, uh, also accepting to take most of the damage coming from the sanctions against Russia. But the, on, the, on the other hand, as you said, it has been done under US leadership, and it has created maybe the false impression that uh, the U.S. pivot was uh, no longer relevant and that the U.S. will try to maintain uh, its uh, its presence, its commitment to Europe uh, on, on a long-term basis. Uh, and I think there is this false impression uh, in Europe that uh, U.S. leadership will uh, remain and has been confirmed by, by this uh, crisis. And, and clearly the the next U.S. elections are, are taboo for the moment in Europe. I don't see a real discussion, public discussion about it. Uh, we are just focusing on, on the near-term uh, most pressing challenges. Uh, so it's quite paradoxical but because the French ideas have progressed. Uh, and I think the idea of a, of a more sovereign Europe on energy, on food production, on defense has is now widely shared by, by Europeans. But there is still a strong disagreements when it comes to the reliability of, of U.S. presence and the need at some point to be more, more independent, more uh, autonomous strategically. Uh, and, and, and there is a, still a huge gap among Europeans on, on, that, uh, on that question. Uh, so, so it's really a mixed uh, results uh, because of that. Well, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, Jeremy, did you want to add anything to what Pierre said? Uh, no, not really. I totally agree with that. I think that the um, uh, that the I think it's important to emphasize, and I think it just emphasize it just uh, magnifies Pierre's point that um, the war uh, and the U.S. Uh, the leadership position that the U.S. has assumed, while it's been very very good for the response to the war, has been very damaging. I think to this long-term approach of right. creating a Europe that is more able to stand up on its own. And I think it's been quite damaging and, and maybe I'm contradicting Pierre a little bit here, I'm not sure, but it damaging, I think, to this French movement, uh, French-led movement, but it was a broader European movement to create more autonomy and sovereignty. The countries that were always against that, I think Poland is the, is the sort of most prominent, um, we're always of the belief that the United States was absolutely necessary for um, uh, the defense of Europe and that uh, the pivot to Asia couldn't be allowed to happen. Um, I don't know what they were yeah. going to do about it, but it couldn't be allowed to happen. And that they were worried about the autonomy movement specifically because they worried that it would send the message to the United States that they could leave. Yeah. Um, and I think that they feel incredibly vindicated. It is it is almost impossible to be in the room with a Polish official right now without hearing uh, their self-congratulation. 
Um, and uh, I think that in a certain sense, they are right in that the, the mood has moved against this autonomy movement. Um, uh, and they, and I think the ability of the Europeans in the next few years to be making the case to themselves more than to the United States uh, that they can operate on their own is been severely damaged by uh, the, the result of the war. I agree. I agree completely. I, I know Nick wants to ask a question, uh, and but, but just to close off this little discussion, I think you're absolutely right on this. And I and Pierre, uh, after Nick uh, has this question, we might want to see what you think about what what Jeremy said on that. But I think it's it has really thrown a uh, a, a strange curveball into that whole debate. And what's making it acute though is with China. Uh, you know, we're going to be, you, you already see within the U.S. Uh, military community, defense community, this debate about China versus Europe versus Russia. Can we chew gum and walk at the same time? And it might very well be, and if you're looking at what comes out of DOD right now, it might very well be the China hands are going to win that debate. And whether Europe likes it or not, they're going to have to step up because we're going to be doing more with China. And, and that is something that will lead to discussions about, well, can we do that better under strategic autonomy? And, and this will help Europe stand on its own feet and to take on more of the load. And that will upset Poland and the others who are going to say, gosh, can't you see with Russia right now what they're doing in Ukraine? We can't have you pivot, number one. And number two, we're not going to be able to do it with strategic autonomy. And so you're going to have this push and pull within Europe. I think it's going to be very interesting. So I, I think you're right. But let's go to Nick. You, Nick, you have a question. Yeah, thanks, Jim. So we've, we've been on this topic of the, the importance of, of U.S. leadership in the, the overall Western response to the war, which I think is totally, totally correct. Um, I do think that that one um, one interesting thing come, you know, coming up in the next few months is this question of whether the European Union will give um, give uh, Ukraine candidate status. Uh, it, um, and, you know, this is this is, in my view, a really important aspect of the, the Western response as well uh, from a geopolitical perspective for Ukraine, um, given that it's it's one of their really high priorities at the moment. You see the Ukrainian leadership constantly uh, banging the drum of, of we want a, an EU perspective. Um, and you know, this is really this is really an area where it, where it is up to Europe, Europe to decide how they want to proceed. And um, uh, Pierre, I was, I was wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit about the French perspective on this question of EU membership for Ukraine. Uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, recently sort of proposed this idea for a broader European political community, which would, you know, not really, it, it is, it's, it's a little bit unclear what exactly he was suggesting, but some have interpreted it as a uh, suggestion for an alternative to membership in the European Union. Um, while you know, I, I think I think it's it's questionable whether that's really the case. But I, I would be curious to hear your, your thoughts on on this question, where you think it, it might may go, what might be the solution given the you know the the real opposition that does exist in some European member union member states uh, to further enlargement. Sure, well, no, that's a great question, Nick. Um... When I think that France has shifted uh, when it comes to EU's enlargement, uh, for many years and, and decades, France uh, has seen enlargement as a purely technocratical process, uh, aiming at just improving the cohesion uh, of, 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 e of the EU. 
uh, and it has clearly failed uh, and not uh, met the expectations from the Western Balkans and, and other candidate countries. And, and now I think Paris is aware that it is a geopolitical instrument and it should be used as if uh, notably to send a signal to Ukraine that they belong to the European family. Uh, so, so President Macron has been very clear that he wants to move fast on that issue, uh, especially to send that, that political signal I mentioned. Uh, the European Commission will deliver its opinion uh, next week, and then we will, we will have a European Council uh, on that specific issue the week after. Um, I think there is clearly a need to, to, to clarify uh, that, that issue and to send a strong political signal to Ukraine. But uh, we should also acknowledge that uh, once Ukraine has such status, uh, it won't uh, become a, a full member of the EU overnight. It will take years, if not decades, uh, just to uh, adopt and enforce uh, years of, of EU's policies and legislation. Uh, and this is actually in the interest of, of Ukraine because it will help uh, the Ukraine authorities to, to implement reform and to strengthen their own uh, governance and, 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 and regime. Uh, so that's why President Macron proposed this idea of a European political community uh, to uh, start uh, increasing the integration of Ukraine in parallel of this negotiation process, which will be long. Uh, so it's not a, an alternative uh, as it is often described, but uh, as a way of, of fostering Ukraine's uh, participation in different EU's policies, uh, when it comes to energy, uh, education, uh, internal markets, uh, for instance, uh, why they are also discussing with the European Commission to, to be part of it. Uh, so that's the idea of, of President Macron, but we should not um, uh, fuel the idea that Ukraine can become an EU member uh, overnight in a couple of months. Uh, it, it's not realistic and it's not in the interest of, of Kiev uh, either. So the short-term uh, priority is to send that signal to Kiev and then uh, start discussing how we could help uh, be uh, more integrated to, to the EU. You know, it's interesting. Uh, that's what you described sounds almost like the Partnership for Peace that we developed back <laughs> in the 90s. That didn't uh, work out. <laughs> well, I, we should debate that. Uh, we should debate that, Jeremy. But um, but it was, it was, again, it was this political... Uh, uh, framework that was that came, was developed because we knew membership in NATO isn't going to happen anytime soon. Uh, this was back in the early 90s. And so PFP was kind of come up as a way to help these countries begin to get engaged with NATO to become understanding what it means to be in the alliance, et cetera, was shaping uh, their candidacy and making them uh, better candidates uh, when the time came including Russia, Jeremy. We even had Russia and PFP for a while, so that didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, well. those were the days. <laughs> That's right. No, exactly right. Well, let me, um, let me, let me ask uh, back to Pierre, uh, kind of picking back up on what Jeremy uh, and I were talking about in terms of the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the fighting in Ukraine, that impact on strategic autonomy. Uh, and because and you really can make a case on the one hand, You'll have Poles and others who say, "Look, this, this, that, that, uh, in that fighting and that invasion and all the help that Ukraine need has proven that strategic autonomy, uh, and again, strategic autonomy isn't military necessarily, but it's, but it's this idea that, look, we can't have some kind of substitute for the U.S. to be engaged, etc. Again, it's not a strategic autonomy; it's not a competitor with NATO; it's not trying to keep the U.S. at arm's length, but." 
there's those that say, look, this should really put into perspective uh, the role of the United States, the need for the United States, uh, and we don't want to do something that makes it sound like we don't we don't want the United States. But on the other hand, uh, you're, the case can be made too, which is we have really got to make this work. Uh, this you know, particularly uh, Europe and the EU developing a military capability that could handle something like Russia coming in. If we if we think the U.S. in the future, we might see more of a Trumpian approach and less of a Biden approach, which is the old approach. Uh, we need to really be doing that. And, and there's going to be those, and Jeremy, you said it very well, who are going to look on this Biden uh, leaning forward and doing the things that we've the U.S. is known for, uh, getting engaged. We're going to come in. We're going to protect you guys. Don't worry. We're here. And that kind of lets a lot of Europeans sit back on the oars and say, good, the U.S. is here. The U.S. is doing the traditional thing, what they've always said they do. We don't have to put as much money into defense. We don't have to do as much as we wanted to. Uh, the U.S. is here. They're going to be here. This is great. So you've got these approaches. It's kind of three approaches uh, that's going to impact and shape uh, the political backing for strategic autonomy in the future. So what do you think, Pierre? Where do you think this is going to come out as, as France and other nations begin to look at and shape that strategic autonomy? Well, I think that for, for Paris, uh, the one in Ukraine has is just an additional uh, confirmation that we, we need more uh, strategic autonomy. Uh, we need to, to spend more uh, on defense, to, to recapitalize our uh, armed forces, to, to be more ambitious. So it has only reinforced the case for more uh, European defense and more largely for more European sovereignty, it's, it goes beyond defense. It's also related to, to energy, uh, our, uh, uh, our industry and, and food production. Uh, but as you said, at the same time, uh, there is this growing debate among Europeans about the potential competition between this uh, European sovereignty and NATO. And that's where I think France should uh, clarify uh, its, its stance on it and clearly say that uh, there is a, a form of division of labor between NATO and the EU when it comes to European collective defense. And, and actually, France has started to, to clarify uh, that uh, when you see uh, France leading a battle group, a NATO battle group in Romania, right. or right. doing air policing missions in Poland and, and the Baltic states. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's a positive signal demonstrating that France uh, believes that NATO is the backbone of our collective defense and that the EU uh, is complementing it, supporting it uh, by right. uh, investing in, in joint capabilities, by uh, increasing our resilience in the cyberspace. Uh, so I think there is a need for clarification. Um, probably the, the NATO summit might be an opportunity to, to do such a thing uh, and to clearly write on the new uh, strategic uh, concept that there is such potential division of labor and not, not competition. Uh, since the beginning of the war, I have actually noticed quite a, uh, an impressive coordination between both organizations, the UN and NATO. Yes. Uh, they have yep. worked in, in lockstep. Uh, so in practice, uh, they are working well together. Uh, now we should agree on the narrative, uh, on, on the messaging. Uh, so that's why the strategic documents like the new strategic concept will be important uh, to have a clear understanding on uh, what uh, European defense means uh, in, in practical terms. No, I, I agree. And the compass, EU compass will play a role in that. And I, I think the point should be made too, that a lot of what the strategic, uh, a lot of what um, strategic autonomy and the EU military capability is, is trying to do is stuff that we've wanted Europe to do as well. 
we wanted Europe militarily to to plus itself up and to do all these things, no matter what's motivating it. Uh, so there's a, there's a part of this that, which uh, is what, that largely know. describes your career. <laughs> well, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. <laughs> no, you know of what point. you speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been Look, trying um, to make that point for years and not always very popularly. But but Jeremy, while you're while you're with us, any anything you want to add to uh, that little discussion and then over to Nick for another. Yeah, I, I guess I do. I mean, I I, I think that, you know, uh, uh, Pierre is is going to make a great diplomat. And uh, I think that that was like a brilliant disposition of the French position. And I on one level, I agree with absolutely everything he said. Uh, well, on every level, it's just that the I think we have to focus on the fact that France is not the problem here. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think that 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 description that you gave really adequately conveys the situation overall in Europe and particularly in Germany. Uh, and and, you know, I think that it's a mistake, even though I agreed with everything you said about EU and NATO and all the things that they should do. It's a mistake to focus on, you know, which of these organizations is going to do what and whether they're working together. Those things are important, but fundamentally autonomy will come and or or sovereignty in the defense realm will come from uh the creation first of all greater spending and then using that spending in certain ways to create capabilities and capabilities that lend themselves to autonomy not just any capabilities at all and i think that this is really important because you're absolutely right that there's been quite people have been standing up all over Europe. And uh, since the Russian invasion, they've, been, they've uh, said, said there's gonna be a lot more spending. And you know, I'm, I'm not unhappy about that, but when you look at the way that they're doing it, I think what you see is that it is an effort and a recognition of, uh, of trying to lock in and trying to double down on a US leadership model rather than a strategic autonomy model. Uh, again, France is an exception here, but in Germany, they just they announced that, you know, they're going to spend 100 billion euros, which is, you know, a fair chunk of change. Um, they could really do some stuff with that. But um, the first thing that they announced that they were going to spend it on was the F-35, right. uh, the U.S. airplane, which is, you know, I think there's good military reasons to do that. So I, don't, I wouldn't criticize it in the short term, but what, it, what, they're, what they're essentially saying is we're never going to develop a European FCAS. We're never going to develop a next generation European fighter um, because we know that in 20 years when they're having that debate, someone's going to say, well, gee, we already have an F-35. It's good for another 30 years. Let's stick with it. Um, so if what, and I think Macron has made this point many times, if they're really going to be autonomous, they need to have a defense industrial capability that can support that autonomy because otherwise they'll never get the political support for it. They'll never be able to spend large defense dollars on American weapons. Um, and uh, the, 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 the increased spending and the changes in defense posture so far, at least since the Russian invasion, even though they've been impressive, haven't supported that kind of a development. Well, I think that's just absolutely brilliant. I, I agree. And I think here in Washington, we do get caught up in, uh, I, I think we do get caught up in, in um, one or another view of Europe, in quotes here, uh, which might be a French view of Europe uh, or another view of Europe. And in fact, it's just not representative of, of what a lot of European nations are thinking right now, but not saying, you know, uh, and uh and I do think that there is a uh, 
with the U.S. coming in, as we should have. I'm not criticizing what we've done, but we've just reinforced the old image of the U.S. The big guy is going to be right there for us, and we don't have to necessarily come in and pay the money and make the hard decisions about being able to uh, do this kind of thing ourselves uh, or have the EU put together how the European nations will be able to, to ha- you know, and I, and I, you know, I don't think there's the answer as well. U.S., you should have just kept out of it and let the Europeans flail about, and then they will have learned that tough lesson, and that's not it either. But I think we do have to realize that um, we probably don't have an accurate view here in Washington of, of Europe, in quotes, where they all are. We know France and French leadership and what Macron wants to do. We've got a good idea of that. Germany is a, is a bit of a uh, mystery. Uh, and Nick, yeah. if you don't mind, to, I know to the Germans too. So that's fair. Enough. Yeah, well, I'm sure. <laughs> but 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 if you don't mind, and Nick, if you don't mind, just a, just a, a minute, Jeremy, on Germany, give us a feeling of of what the Germans. I mean, you've got the elites, you know, uh, a handful of Germans who talk about defense and security, but you've got that broader political class that are trying to sort themselves out. Members of the coalition who are finding themselves in places they never thought they'd be in terms of being in the middle of a war. And then you've got the German people who aren't, as you said, they're not used to talking about this stuff. It's always been the US that handled that. And now all of a sudden it's on uh, it's on the plate of the average German to be thinking about all this money and a bigger military and this type of thing. So give us a quick view. And then Nick, I promise the next question to you. <laughs> okay, I'll try to, I'll try to be less long-winded. Um, look, I think that there's been a, a real and important shift here in the last uh, few months. I mean, as I said, 100 billion euros is definitely indicative of something. Um, and this idea uh, that, you know, that, there, that, that basically the world had moved beyond geopolitics, which was quite present in Germany uh, until recently, and that, German, and that Germany didn't need to uh, sort of face up to a, a geopolitically competitive world in which force was a real option in which uh, and which um, uh, military power really mattered. Uh, I think that has take, that, that that debate has taken a decisive turn here. And I think, broadly speaking, all of the parties, with I guess the exception of the AFD, sort of accept. Uh, and this is true. You know, you can see this most prominently in the Greens, which have, who have turned decisively away from pacifism and decisively away from. Uh, but I think even in the SPD, you can see this. Um, and so that, that is why they are willing to send arms to Ukraine at all. It's why they're willing to spend so much more money. It's why the debate here uh, on, um, on defense looks so different than it did a few months ago. But as I said, what, what hasn't changed is the form in which the German contribution to Western defense wants to take. Um, they still see the US leadership model uh, by and large, there's some differences on in this within Europe and within Germany, but I think by and large, they still see the U.S. leadership model as vastly preferable. Uh, and so they are not signed on to the French project overall of European autonomy. And so the spending and the, the new turn is going to, in certain way, trying to reconstruct the Cold War order that they had, which they found very congenial. Um, I mean, uh, and so I think that in, on the one hand, they've become more geopolitical, but on the other hand, they've become more dependent on uh, the United States. And I think that the, the first development is very good and very important and, and a real shift. The second 
one is a problem. And I think we're, we're going to have to confront that in the, in the years and months to come. I think that's right. Nick. Yeah. Uh, while, while we are on the topic of, of Germany and the, the, the degree to which it's, um, you know, foreign policy stance has or has not truly evolved in the last few months, you've spoken about the, the topic of uh, defense spending and its, its approach toward uh, security. But I, I'm wondering what you think about when it comes to uh, the uh, economic and energy relationship with Russia that, you know, had been uh, quite important for some time. Obviously, you had the uh, cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, right after the invasion first happened, as well as um, increasing uh, energy sanctions against Russia recently on the EU level. But I'm wondering to, to what degree you, you really think that there is a decisive, decisive, um, I guess, uh, agreement within Germany to, to really move away from Russia, isolated economically, not just in the short term, but, you know, for, you know, the coming years as well. Um, what's, what's, what's your opinion here? Um, where do you think Germany really is on this issue? Yeah, there's been quite a decisive turn, I think, on that issue. Um, I mean, really, the Germans have laid out a plan to um, reduce and basically eliminate their um, their uh, purchases of Russian energy in, within yeah, three to five years, which is extraordinary. I mean, that's a massive shift and a huge economic lift. I think the chancellor is so nervous about that and nervous about that, the effect on the domestic political economy that they've done things uh, like, um, well, strangely, they're subsidizing gasoline here as of the first of the month. <laughs> um, so now, uh, the, if you go buy a liter of gasoline here, the German government will pay 30 cents of it. Um, so, uh, so it's a very nerve wracking thing for German politicians. And it really sort of deeply threatens the German business model. I think they know that they can deal with it in with regard to Russia and they have decided to do so. Uh, but um, I think they're even more nervous about China because they have no, if, if, uh, if they had to make similar economic moves toward China, um, they would suffer uh, much more dramatically. So I think that that's, I think that that's a massive uh, shift and it's quite, real of course there is a lot of hope here that that it's not a that it's not a permanent shift that they can uh you know there's division on that question here but um that they can someday get back to a more uh, full-throated trading relationship and maybe even an energy relationship with russia although i think they would never go back to the level of dependence that they had uh before the war um but uh i think um that is a longer term prospect. And for the next, yeah, say five years or so, they're, they're contemplating uh, a real decoupling, which, is, which was unimaginable last year. I think we are, are at time now. So I wanna, I wanna thank you both so much for, for joining us today. It's been a really great discussion. I, um, I, I learned a lot and it's, it's been great to hear your perspective. So thank you so much. And I, I hope we uh, find time to have you back on the podcast soon. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thank you so much, uh, Nick and Gina. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.